There is an adage among Calvary chaplains, I guess this is a safe way to put it. I, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. And as you're aware, if we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Word of God, we've gone through the first four books of the Bible, which takes us into the book of Deuteronomy. And we are in the mo- one of the most fulcrumatic, beautiful, powerful texts. Yes, it's a pivotal text. And so, of all my Hebrew, I usually type all my Hebrew and that kind of thing and prepare myself in my heart. And it is the text that Jesus quotes in Matthew 22, along with a text from Leviticus 19. And it occurred to me that because we start laying this groundwork in the Torah, that maybe even people might even be unfamiliar with the text in Matthew 22. So with all of this preparation <clears throat> for something I will not be teaching today, uh, the Lord, in one of those glorious moments, hijacks the whole thing and says, step into it, let me lead. We're going to go through Matthew 22 today. So would you please open up your Bibles. If you have one, if you don't, raise your hand and they'll bring one right to you. To Matthew chapter 22. Or should I say flip in your Bibles in your laps or your phone with your apps or whatever. However it is, Matthew 22. We're going to go right to prayer. There is... It's like one of those cakes where you want to eat slowly because every bite's just gooey and yummy. That's how I look at this text. And I want you to savor it with me. So pray with me, would you please? Lord, there are a trillion things we could be thinking about right now that will be meaningless in comparison to the amount of to the time we want to do that we want to set aside right now, Lord, to do that which Mary did when you said the only thing, only one thing is required. And though Martha was so busy serving, and there was nothing wrong with serving, we could do that until we are raw and exhausted and never even do the one thing required. That is to sit at your feet, to hear your word, to adore you. And Lord, for all of the knowledge that you've told us, that knowledge in and of itself can simply puff up, but it's love that builds up, edifies. Commandeer our attention. Take full possession of our heart today and make it your home. And on this beautiful, sunny Sunday, the last one in November, 2014, we want to walk out of here completely yours. Where we get you. We understand to the core what is your drive and your desire, your ambition, your goal, your target, your focus. So Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, your primary catalyst for intimacy, may you have complete free reign to lead to teach, to expound. I'm excited. I feel like I'm strapped in on a ride. I don't even know what it is yet. Except this. I know I'm going to end up in your arms. And I'm going to enjoy it. Give us that joy today. Lead us. And I just love you so much. I pray that we would abound in that love 
what you tell us, we shouldn't even pretend to say that we love you if we're not willing to obey you. Give us obedient hearts, humble and contrite, but in complete awe of you. Have your way now, we pray. May your word burst open and come alive and speak to every heart, mine too, today. Speak to every mind that we would understand. Open our understanding. May we live in the text, color in the black and white, and give us clarity. May we, in all of this, encounter you. Save the lost. Strengthen the weak. Encourage the discouraged. Put peace upon the fearful. Strength and surety upon the doubting. Just don't leave us alone. Jesus, in your name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just assume what I say is true. Don't just assume it's true because I say it. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Of all of the Gospels that are written for, one of them was written by a tax collector, originally named Levi, which may lead us to actually assume he may even come from such a tribe. And if that were be the case, how powerful is the fact that this would have been a PK, a priest kid, who left it to become the biggest traitor in the sight of all of the Jewish nation, those that would extort taxes from the Jewish people. I mean, the, Jew, the, the Romans knew that, that people might attack the Romans, but they wouldn't kill their own. So getting them to do the dirty work was win-win in the eyes of the Romans. But Matthew had a really unique set of qualifications as a tax collector, including an unlimited amount of materials, writing materials, and the education in Roman shorthand. And what that means is, is that Matthew could actually write as fast as you could talk. You could not be a tax collector without being able to do so. I'm actually fully under the impression, you're welcome to disagree and be a Christian, but I'm fully under the impression that Matthew wrote down the Sermon on the Mount whilst listening to it. And how many times in the Gospel of Matthew does Jesus say things like, well, then you know better than a tax collector. Don't even the tax collectors do that? And I think how profound that of all the people, this would be one of them writing that down. You're probably aware of the fact Jesus' public ministry was roughly three and a half years in the sense of in the flesh as we know him. Which is interesting because that's the same amount of time that was required, the fullest extent of time it would be required for a man to work off his bride price for his bride. It started with seven, if you remember, back in the days of Jacob. And by the day of Jesus, it worked to three and a half years. I mean, all of the three things that would be required, any one of the three would have sufficed that Jesus chose all three to redeem the debt, to work it, to restore honor. He'd done it all. In those three and a half years, there was a time where Jesus was quite popular as you're probably aware of the majority of his ministry up in the north in the area of Galilee. It's a two-hour drive, by the way, between that and Jerusalem, but it's a one-week trip. You're going to travel without a car 2,000 years ago. We're probably aware of the fact there were no cars, right? But as Jesus' popularity grows, and it is even a prophecy in the, in the book of Daniel to the day that we know as Palm Sunday, there's an expectation from the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince, the coming King, the Anointed One, that was the fulfillment of over 300 plus prophecies of a coming conquering King that would deliver his people and promote peace. So there is a buzz. We know the seasons here were expectant. And then this guy starts showing up after 400 years, in essence, of relative prophetic silence among the Israeli people. This is a really big deal which is great for everyone except for those who held the religious order of the day 
Because they had already built their kingdom. They had already built their buildings. They had set up their, their thrones and their establishments. We even read things like the palace of the high priest. That tells you kind of the position socially and financially these guys were in. And Jesus cramped their style. Oh, he blew out everything. He has this habit, by the way, of ripping tradition out to get back to the simplicity of a relationship between you and him. And the greater that Jesus becomes more popular, the more this friction grows because everything Jesus does is completely in accord with word, but completely out of accord with the society that they had built, the traditions that they had established. Are you with me so far? Well, that could never have been to a greater degree of, in, of tension than the final week before Jesus is crucified. If you actually read all of the Gospels, you'll find a couple of things. One is that Jesus descends on Palm Sunday. We know it as Palm Sunday, the, which happens to be a week before his resurrection. He will, according to the Gospel of Matthew, look at the temple, which is riddled with a farmer's market, market and street fair, and leave. Jesus will not turn into the Hulk, turn green, rip his cloak open, and just start beating people neck and ankle. As some people would like to say, I've even heard guys say, well, there's a reason for being wrathful, because look at how Jesus freaked out when he walked into the temple. But when you read the Gospel of Mark, what makes clear is Jesus went in the first day, looked around, came back the next day. It was cold, it was clear, and it was calculated. And he started to drive out those who sold. He started to clear out the temple. And as he starts to clear out the temple, what we read is, after which the lame and the blind came to him to be healed, which tells me a little bit about Jesus' emotional condition, because if he had been freaking out and just going mental, which one of you with a problem would come to him right after that and go, well, maybe we should give him a couple days to cool down? But needless to say, Jesus came back to clean his house. It's completely in accord, of course, with those of you familiar with Pesach, the Passover, where you drive out the chametz, the, the leaven, before the Passover can actually take place. And Jesus was driving out the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the religious order. But then comes the day of challenge. A day, the following day now, we're at Tuesday, where the religious leaders now have had time to gather and see they're pitting Jesus against the crowd. They're pitting him against the law because they know that the law is in essence merciless. And so they have to really kind of try to play this whole thing out. And they figure if they could just trip him up, clearly they're going to win the battle. And that's our chapter 22, as Matthew records it. Interesting, we will find that the Pharisees will challenge him, the Sadducees will, will challenge him, and then a lawyer will challenge him after that from the Pharisees, the scribes. But before all of that is recorded, and then by the way, Jesus will throw a stump out, shut them all up, and then they'll stop challenging him. But Jesus gives us this beautiful parable. Look at it with me, right at the beginning of chapter 22. It says, And Jesus answered and he spoke to them again by parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son that would make him a prince. You can work that out, right? This is the United Kingdom. We're familiar with how that works. And he sent on his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing. Would you say not willing? Come on, you got more than that. There's one of me, a whole lot of you. Not willing. Right. Did, were they invited? Were they? They were invited. Did they come? Why? Because they were not willing. Yeah, these are easy questions, right? I'm trying to ask easy questions here. I want you to feel like you're doing well. All right. Verse 4. Again, he sent out other servants telling, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Now let me ask you. Did this invitation only come once? No, to the same people, correct? What did he beat them with the second time? Meat. Tells me that he's trying to get guys to come. Got it. It says then, but they made light of it. Would you say made light of it? What does that mean? They laughed. They did, they did not take it seriously. Does that make sense? They made light of it. It wasn't important to them. 
and went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his own business, and the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. So many of them had kind of an indifferent response, and some actually had more than an indifferent response, but that was even worse. They actually spitefully treated, abused, beat, and even killed the messengers. Would you want to be one of those? Yeah, well, you know, if that were the only thing. Thank you for your answer. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Notice how many cities? Uh, What does it say here? Cities. So how many is it? One. A whole lot of one. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Why did they become not worthy? Because of two things. What were those two things? One was they were not willing, and what was the second? They made light of the invitation. Does that make sense? Okay, good. I'm just making sure you're here. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highway and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, where did those who filled the wedding hall come from, according to these verses? Excellent. The highways. They went under bridges. They went into homeless shelters. They went into halfway houses. They scooped up any guy that had a big issue. And they brought him in. Now maybe if you're a little unfamiliar with this, and this is going to set the scene for the entire rest of the text, these three challenges, which will then ultimately climax with our text that takes us to Deuteronomy. If you're unfamiliar with the text or with the culture, you might go, oh, that's awful. This guy looks and this poor guy was so poor he couldn't afford a decent tux. And he looked at him and he said, hey, scrubby, get out of here. Bind him and beat him and send him out into darkness where he gnashes his teeth. What a meanie. Now, again, if you don't know the culture, that would make sense. Well, let me explain a little bit. Culturally, when a person had a wedding, especially when it's an arranged wedding, the man, the father, was responsible to clothe every attendant, every person who came. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that would already kind of make the wedding a whole lot smaller. You would, as a result of that, make sure that every person was properly clothed and they would properly take your clothing as a response to honor the wedding. So let's put these things into perspective. There's a dad, and he has a son. Come on, son. Now, again, what would be his title? Prince, formerly known as. All right, so here's the prince. The marriage notice is arranged. So who do you think arranged it? I did. And I said, who would be perfect for a guy like this? I know. (laughs) Who better? Ah! You need someone to put some life in this guy. And we found it. We found it here with Mary. What a good Christian name like Mary. Now... Who sends the messengers? I do. You know why? Because I'm really excited about my boy. Good, strapping, strong boy. He's getting married. So I'm just working out. See, so you're like, oh, I knew I shouldn't have come to church today. So, so I go out and I go, okay, okay, I need some messengers. Messengers. 
I need you to go, and I need you to go and run out and go tell people the wedding is ready. Go ahead and tell some people. Tell the invited guests. You know who the invited guests are. They're the favored of the king, what it would appear to be. So go ahead and go ahead and invite some people. You get to be the first response. You get to be the second response. Oh, wait, come this way first. Messages, go this way first. Okay. Okay, so first response again is what was it again? What was your response? You were not willing. So you're like, nah, right. So come back and tell me, you know, that this is our first group. And where the, and this guy's in the back, not willing. Not will, okay. Okay. Now, how do you think the son feels at this? This is really stinks to be prince at the moment. Now I need you to go to the second group. Well, go, in, go again. Go again. But tell them there's a barbecue. All you can eat meat. Go tell them. Now go tell this group. Yeah, you know what happens next. Okay, now what happens? They not only took it lightly, but what else did they do? They beat them up and abused them. Come on, you guys. Come on, get into it. <laughs> That's the point. Now, the whoever, some, no, some make it back and some don't, right? So they kind of come back and I'm like, oh. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what ha- where's the rest? He's dead. Great. Okay. Now, at this point, the king is angry and he says, send the army. Okay, you guys can be seated because I don't want you to have to kill in return. You know. And so, and he sends the army. But notice he doesn't go against all the people who said no or took it lightly. He, did, he goes against those who, who murdered. Did you notice that? He only goes after the murders and their city. So he takes them down. And then he goes, okay. And then, get this, you ready? Now he's got to call his servants one more time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, would you be nervous to be a messenger at this point? Because you know the history up to this point has been it ain't been so good. And these were the favored of the king appears or what appears to be. Does that make sense? So now I want you to go, and I want you to go and and hit Hackney and Brixton and go to Tottenham. You know, and, and tell him just find out what the postcode is. Tell him you're from that, and then go there and invite them to the wedding and tell them. Oh, you know what? You're at it. And by the way, did we read that he even has to bait him with food? No. He just says, hey, I've got everything prepared. Would you please come? Does that make sense? So off the messenger goes to invite. Skipping along because she has no idea that the last ones have been beat to death. <laughs> and the invitation comes and they come in. And now we have a full house of riffraff. Which, by the way, welcome to church, beloved. But as it is the case, there's a guy who doesn't have the wedding clothes. Why would this guy not have wedding clothes? Do you think it's because I didn't give it to him? Well, who is the guy that's handing out the clothes? Let me remind you. Who is he? Yeah, and who is, and who is that according to the parable? He's a king. Now, a king is not going to invite more people than he has clothes for. Wouldn't that be humiliating for a king? He's going to make sure he put this thing on well. It's Armani togas for everybody. Y'all looking good. So who wouldn't wear that? Either someone who goes, this is just going to add ten stone to my weight. It's going to go straight to my hips. No, that's not it. Somebody who objects to the wedding. See, to come, now it's one thing to not come. It's another thing to come and not be dressed for it. Does that make sense? It's one thing to go, you know what? Uh, Oh, it's the wedding of that guy. Oh, I'm not going to come. He's already had that with the first group. You remember that? But for a person to actually come without the wedding clothes on is openly, openly, publicly protesting the wedding. Does that make sense? They are, in essence, they would seek to interfere. Even those servants would be clothed in the wedding clothes. Does that make sense? So he's like, oh, you're actually here to fight this. You're here to interfere with this. Does that make sense? Okay, be seated, please. Thank you, you guys. That's right. For these, oh, yeah, and congratulations. Yeah. Yes. Of this group, who was called? 
Everyone. Don't miss that. Of this group, who was called? Who? Okay, then how come everyone's not responding? Of this group, who was called? Who was chosen? Oh, no. You know who was chosen? Those who said yes. Did you see that? Those who said yes. And not just said yes to the food. Said yes to the wedding. Did you get that? And that's why it was so important to bring in that last guy. Because without that, you would say, well, it's all right. As long as I'm in church, things are good. No, 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 no. There's so much more. There is a wedding and the king is arranging it. And he knows that there are those who already call themselves favored of the kingdom. And they are ready. But they are not interested in the matters of the king. And they are certainly not interested in the marriage. So they're like, no, you know what? I've got my own thing. I've got my own dreams. I've got my own plans. I've got my own. I already have my 10-year plan right out, and I'm going to figure out how to fit God into that. And God goes, no, here are my plans. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to make light of that because what I have is more important. Does that make sense? So in the end of it all, it's like, look it, you're all invited. But if you say no, I'm not going to choose you. And you go, well, how can that be if God knows everything? Can I just say, stop freaking out about things you can't explain and recognize the part you're responsible for. Don't make light of the call of God on your life. Don't dismiss it. Say yes to the one who's calling you to the wedding feast. Here's the greatest part. You show up and then in the end of it all, the strange thing is the clothes he puts on is a wedding gown because you actually get to be part of the bride. How strange is that? You can see, well, wait a minute, but there was also this guy, and he really interfered with the wedding. He would have happily taken the money and taken the blessing and taken the gifts, but he was not interested in the wedding. Does that make sense? So guess what we're going to have? We're going to have that guy show up in three different challenges. That's the point of the next three texts. So follow up with me. Look at it with me. So, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. They recognized that Jesus had just humiliated them. I guess they kind of realized what role they played in the script. And there have been several times, well, you'll find at least once where the disciples, even the disciples got and said, you realize when you said that, that really offended them, as if Jesus is like, oh, oh, shucky darns, what did I just do? He knew. Hey, by the way, the parable of the... Uh, the prodigal son that many of us love so much in the Gospel of Matthew, or, sorry, of Luke, it's only in Luke. The audience that he's speaking to doesn't relate to the prodigal son. The context, the audience Jesus is speaking to would relate to the other brother who was really upset that the guy came home and got favor and was welcome back home. I challenge you, don't just believe me, look at it for yourself. It's Luke 15. Anyways. So here they are. They sent to him their disciples. Oh, that's great. They're going to send their students with the Herodians saying, Teacher, of course they're not going to call him Lord. We know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth. Nor do you care about anyone. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't care about people. In other words, he's not going to be sucked into status. He's not going to fawn over a guy from one direction walking in next to him. He could care less. He's just another human being. Or whoever you want to put in that place. I just happen to have a teen daughter. Anyways. For you do not regard the person of men. Well, then tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Hypocrite, by the way, hypocrite just means to wear a mask. In the simplest sense, it's an actor. Although that we don't want to use that as a negative term because we have many in the acting profession in our fellowship. So let's use the word poser. Does that have a positive to any of you? Okay, let's work with that. Do you know what a poser is? The guy that actually walks through Camden with a glue-on mohawk. Don't just believe me. Oi, oi, oi. Show 
me the money. It's right here in text, verse 19. Show me the tax money. So they brought to him a denarius, and he said to them, well, whose image and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said, well, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way, because strike one just happened. And I use the context of all of that, by the way, again. Jesus had already told us about this wedding. Those that were interfering with the wedding. And now the, this, these guys come out. And these, by the way, were considered the intellectual giants of the day. And as they were, they're going to come out and they know this. If we could pin Jesus to the corner where he has to choose one or the other, well, then we're going to win. The same ones, in essence, who are going to throw a woman caught in adultery, if you remember back in John 8. Because, and, I, and by the way, that text always rips open my heart, honestly, because, you see, the catch-22 was they knew that Jesus wasn't going to break any laws. But they also knew that he was merciful. What they knew was that the law wasn't merciful. So if they could force him to make a choice, he either had to break the law or lose mercy. And if he lost mercy, all of those people that trusted he was merciful would leave. They would win. If he broke the law, they could arrest him as a lawbreaker, so they would win. So it's kind of win-win. Jesus always has this. Why argue with God over the things? Of, why argue with God with anything? You really think you're going to win? All those scientists that think they're so smart and then they're going to tell God they couldn't believe in him, you're not going to win that battle. You're going to stand before God and go, I didn't believe you existed. God's like, yeah, we're aware of that. God's like, you were unwilling to believe. Let's just be honest. Please hear me. Here's the trap. Everybody, all of the Jewish people hate Rome. So if they get Jesus to look like he's sympathetic to Rome, well then he's going to lose all of his following and we win. Or if Jesus says, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't pay taxes to Rome. Just where the temple was set on the northeast corner was the Antonio Fortress. And the Romans looked. That's, by the way, where Pilate and Herod would, would be when Jesus was being tried. And so and where Jesus would get beat up really, really bad, of course, as well. So they're always looking down into the temple, especially here at this last week, because this is the week of Passover, preparation for Passover. So they're heightened. It's like they have lots of guys out. So all Jesus has to say is, oh, you don't have to pay taxes to Rome. Well, boom, there you go. And then they can arrest them for this, call him an insurrectionist, which is what they're going to accuse him of anyways. And he gets, so they, they figured this is airtight. Would that make sense? I mean, you could see them kind of sitting together and they're like, hey, what do we do? What do we do? Oh, I know this will do it. Yeah, because he's clearly keeping law, but he's also, yeah, this will do it. <laughs> Break. And they go to him and Jesus says, show me one of these. In my hand here is a denarii. Denarius. It's a singular. I don't know if you can see that. Well, I'll show you. There's a face there. You see the face. Don't worry. You're next. You weren't willing, so I'm just going to show you. So, okay. You can see that. This was a day's wage, by the way. You see that? Now, I did some investigation today, and I found some very startling things. You ready for this? The average day's wage for a stall worker in Camden. How many of you, do any of you work in the stalls? Okay, yeah. The average day's wage is from 10 to 50 pounds a day. A day. Yeah, 10 to 50. If you made more than that, Jay, nice job. <laughs> see, see, yeah, so you feel it. Ah, um, and so this is a day's wage. Interesting, by the way, you, wouldn't, you shouldn't be able to even have this in the temple. And the reason you shouldn't have this in the temple was because this was foreign money. And remember how God says, make no images to worship? Well, obviously there's an image on it. And so Jesus knows. So I, he's standing in his house. And he says, give me a coin and give me a denarii. And he does. And he goes, no, every one of you is familiar with this. Who's Image. Do you notice that's the word that he writes in there? Whose image is this made in? And they said, well, Caesar. Image and inscription, it belongs to Caesar. Well, if it's created in his image, I guess it belongs to him, doesn't it? But then he says, well, then give to God what's his. So the only question then, this is common logic, is, well, then what was created in his image? What was created in God's image, beloved? You were. That's the point. 
God is standing before a group of people who will not give him what God really wants. What does God really want? Them. That's what he wants. You guys are so caught up in this thing that has somebody else's image so it doesn't belong to you that you don't even recognize the one thing that does belong to God is you and you won't even give it to him. And you can see them going, oh, oops. And off they go with their tail between their legs. But there's always round two. Well, the Pharisees were, in essence, a, a response group to the sort of back to the Bible thing. They were like way big on trying to go back because of a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees, by the way, once Israel kind of came back and repopulated, and this is roughly the 400s, late 400s, early 500s um, B.C., after they had been taken captive in 586 B.C. by uh, Nebuchadnezzar III and so forth, by, um, by Babylon, when they came back after all of that, they had to figure out who's the new high priest. I mean, we don't have a king anymore, so who's going to be the guy, the big guy? Well, let's make it the high priest. Well, who's our high priest? Well, there's, they've got to be from a particular tribe, right? That's the tribe of Levi, Levi. But they also have to be from a particular par- portion of that tribe. Of the three sons he had, one was named Kohat, so they need to be a Kohat. By the way, to this day, maybe some of you are familiar with the name Kohen. If you actually literally have that name, you can apply for priesthood amongst the Temple Institute right now because it's originally from Kohat. That's the idea, just so you know. And so then they have, okay, well, now you've narrowed it down to this family, so now you have a whole batch of these guys, and so you say, of all of these guys, who do we make high priest? And it, dis- it is discovered that one of those guys was a direct descendant of the high priest during David and Solomon's time, and his name was Zadok. So he was a Zadokite, or as we might say with an Arabic influence or a Greek influence, a Zadokim, which is where we get the term Sadducee from. A Sadducee was a person that all of a sudden, because he happened to have the surname Jones, Smith, Lee, whatever it would be in the culture, he was granted the greatest pieces of property in all of Israel without any qualification of character, belief, nothing like that. So what happened is you had a bunch of guys who didn't even believe in God that were rich landowners, but they were called then the representatives or the leaders of Israel. Could you imagine? Actually, you might be able to because people get leadership positions often within church organizations by their, well, by their academic accomplishments versus their character. It should never be the case. Hey, I'm not telling you that we should hire the dumbest person. I'm telling you I would rather have a person that's not as bright a bulb in the chandelier, but you could count on them in character versus somebody who's brilliant and willing to just destroy everything and hurt people. Well, with that said... The Sadducees then became the naturalists. They were the liberals. Ultimately, from that, there was a group called the Perishah, which is where we get Pharisee from. They were, they were the separatists. And they were, we don't want anything to do with that kind of Judaism. We're going to go back to the Torah. But then they also went and tacked onto that, then all of these other historical you know, traditions and that kind of thing to make sure they wouldn't go near breaking the law. Of the 613 commandments that were in the Torah, they also added, and what a scribe was, was a guy that went, oh, I think that this is what it means to keep the Sabbath or break the Sabbath, and they would write these laws into it, and they were just as much of a law as these other 613 commandments that we have in in the Torah. So there was a sort of this masochistic relationship between the scribe and these Pharisees. So the Pharisees were the legalists. That's the idea. So the legalists came out with this idea of paying taxes to Caesar. Jesus shuts them down, and now comes the liberal. And can I just say that the classic attack of a liberal will always be the same, and that's to make up a story to appeal to someone's heart. And that's the story that we have here. Read it with me, if you will. Verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees then, who say there is no resurrection, because they couldn't believe in anything they didn't see, came to him and asked him. By the way, during this time, the high priest was even a Sadducee. So imagine the high priest didn't believe in anything he couldn't see. And he, anyways, you get it. He came and asked him, the, the Sadducees, they came to Jesus and asked him, saying, Teacher, notice the same title. Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That's Deuteronomy 25, the Leverett marriage law. No, here's the story. There was this guy and he had this, this woman and there were these seven brothers. The first died after he had been married and he had no offspring and he left his wife to his brother. You know, maybe she would pick horrible things for her salad and they were poisonous and he ate the salad and he died. 
Now, if you had this kind of law, by the way, wouldn't you be careful if you were one of the younger brothers who your older brother married? You'd be like, no way are you marrying that girl. Or if you do, you are not allowed to die. Because I have to have a child and name him after you so you can keep going. Ah, oh, there's no way I'm going near that guy. Single. I think you're called the singleness. So there were seven brothers and they married. The first guy married. He died, ate her salad. And then, of course, brother number two steps in. Verse 26. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh. Second eats the salad. Third eats the salad. Yeah, you get it. Verse 27. Last of all, she eats her salad. All, last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in this resurrection that they don't believe in, I remind you, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all had her. Jesus answered and he said to him, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither, and don't miss this, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God. Hmm. Angels of God can't be married? No, actually, they can't. And can I just say, they're spiritual beings. And, I, can, and we're adults here, so I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do an American thing. I'm going to bluntly punch us all in the face with the truth. They can't have sex with people. They're spiritual beings. And he says, look, it, they're not married nor given in marriage. They're not able to. They're spiritual beings. Because there's a teaching among the church that, that anyways, I don't want to even go there. And Jesus is like, you know why you're mistaken? You don't even know the scriptures. You're not into the Bible. You're into this kind of counterculture thing that has nothing to do with Scripture. In the the resurrection, look at verse 30 again. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Didn't you even read this part that said, I am the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jacob? And by the way, again, from this, he's quoting from Exodus 3, verses 15, or 6, actually, verse 6 and, and verse 15. God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. When the multitude heard this, they were astonished at this teaching. Now, here's the idea of the second one. And and I'll start picking up the pace here because we're going to get to the apex here with the third. In the first one, you get the idea that the whole idea is, to whom do I belong? Which makes sense in a wedding situation. Because the whole declaration of your vows is, I belong to you. That's the whole idea of the wedding vows. Does that make sense? In the second situation, they're like, all right, little Mr. Smart Pants. If you think you're so smart, in the resurrection, who is this girl going to be married to? She was married to, six, to seven guys on, on earth. Jesus goes, you know why we're not married in heaven? Because we already are married in heaven. Not like the angels. The angels can't get married at all. They're not capable of being married. But you are betrothed to God. And if you are betrothed to God, why would this matter? So which tells you, by the way, if you're going to get married on earth, and you're going to have us do the wedding, don't ever expect me to say, and you're going to be married eternally. Well, you are, but not to that person. You're going to be married on earth as long as you live on earth. May you be married. And if you want to get divorced, we'll kill you, so we'll make sure. Anyways, you get it. But to death do you part, we'll take that seriously. But, you know, y'all want to leave? We'll take care of that. We could say nobody gets divorced in our church. So I'm like, wow, it's better to be single in such a circumstance, perhaps. But in heaven, you already have a groom. And Jesus has already called him that, himself that, and John has already called himself that, all the way back in John 3. All the way back in John 2, we're going to see those texts. So please hear me in this. In the first of, the, of these three challenges, Jesus says, you belong to God. Give him what he properly deserves. You belong to him. Why do you belong to him? Because you're betrothed to him. So in the second, it's like you need to think from eternal perspective. You're already betrothed. Stop thinking about the fact you're going to be married to this person. That's a Mormon thought. Truth is that you're going to be married on earth, and it should demonstrate how beautiful it is to be united so that when you get to heaven, you already know what you're in for, only on a perfect scale. Does that make sense? And at that, the Sadducees, and this will be the, the thing, you're going to, this is the law, and the Sadducees, well, I have a story to make up that will prove your situation wrong. And Jesus is like, no, that's not going to work either. And Jesus, is, and Jesus just goes and says, you know, you, if you knew Scripture, you wouldn't even be talking like this. So then it takes us to the third one, and this is where the whole thing hits the head. In verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, and they were competing parties, so they were probably at least happy about that, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, and I'm not one of dis lawyers, because we have a couple in our fellowship, and I don't want to get sued by them. Um, 
asked him a question. And they tested him. Notice again the testing. And notice, by the way, the title's the same, teacher. What is the great commandment in the law? Of these 613 commandments, which one is the most important? I want to remind you. I want to remind you. I want to remind you this is God answering this question. Not just a person and a good teacher, not just a miracle worker, not just a rabbi. This is God in the flesh answering the question. And the question is, what does it mean to have a commandment? That's, what does God really want me to do? What do you really want from me? Have you ever asked that of God? God, of all the things you want, what do you really want from me? What do you want? And Jesus answers. He says, you really want to know? We could put this whole thing into one thing. You know what I want? I want your love. That's what I want. Now, wouldn't that make sense if you were standing at the altar? Do you know what the groom really wants? He wants your love. That's what he wants. And here's the thing. If what you really realize is that what God wants is your love, because by the way, he knows that what you need, what you need, what I need is his. Almost every other question we could possibly ask will be nonsense. Imagine you're standing at the altar, and as you're standing at the altar, and the groom says, I just, I just want your love. And you say, so what, like, you, 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 like, you want my iPad? Like, what, are we signing a prenuptial agreement here? So what do you want, like, my time? Is that what you want, is, like, more time? Like, my talents, is that what you want? Do you want my popularity, is that what you want? Do you want my dreams and ambitions? Just when you're love, if you give me your love, everything else will work out. Everything else will work out. Because if I really had your love, you wouldn't even be considering what's important and what's not anymore. Because you have mine. When you hated me, I love you. When you were dead in your trespasses and sin, I chased you. And you were running after everything but me. I chased you and I wanted you and I called you and I drew you with cords of a loving kindness because I've loved you with an everlasting love. Because I've loved you with an everlasting love, I want to be your first love. And how do, we, how do you know I'm your first love? Because before you were created, I loved you. You can't get earlier than that in your life. I've wanted you beforehand. Now, you could take it lightly and you could diss it and you could say, I've got this to pursue and that to pursue and this is important. And, and the more that happens, the angrier you'll get at the messenger. But they're like, what does God really want? What he wants is your love. Now, you can't have that without a relationship. It's like, well, you know what I really want is here's the treaties of 613 rules. Just do those. And when you're done... I'll evaluate your performance. Does that sound like someone who wants your love? It's like, but if you loved me, it's going to look like this. You're not going to go chasing after other things because you love me. Isn't that the first commandment? But you're not going to go out whoring after other gods if you really love me. If you love me, you wouldn't be trading me in even for physical things. You wouldn't be going after something you could think you could hear, touch, or tell, taste and chase after that instead of me if you really loved me. You wouldn't leave me for anyone or anything. And if you loved me, my name would be different than every other person in your life. It would have greater impact and greater weight. If you loved me, you would set aside time for me. Because if you love me, you'd want to be with me. Isn't that the first four commandments? And then Jesus says, and there's a second commandment if you really want to wrap up the rest, because all the commandments basically fit into one of two categories. They fit into the vertical or the horizontal. The vertical means that's always first. That's always first. I want your love, and then I want you to take that love that I give you, and I want you to spend it on everybody else, specifically my family. Before you run out to the lost, I want you to run out to the saved and love them. I want them to be the most cared for people, and I want you to be a part of that. 
You know what's going to happen? The enemy's going to jump and say, yeah, but if you do that, you're going to get abused. And if you do that, it's going to be this and it's going to be that. But if you love God first, he's always going to heal those wounds. And if you love God first, you won't live in the fear of what could happen because you'll hear it from him. The reason he tells you to obey is so that you don't spend it poorly. But he'll say, and I've learned this, God puts people on your radar that may not be on mine because it's your call on this one, not mine. So when you say, Pastor Tony, I happen to notice that there was this person and this is what they look like and this was their need. And I'm like, awesome, what are you going to do about it? And they're like, but you're the pastor. I'm like, but they're on your radar. Why do you think they hit your radar? Because he wants to use you too. So listen, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and great commandment, and the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, he's going to pull now from, instead of Deuteronomy 6, is where we'll be the next time around on this. He pulls now from Leviticus 19. We've gone through that. And he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And you're like, how could I possibly memorize 613 laws? You don't have to. Memorize two. God says, what I want is for you to love me. And then I want you to take my love and love other people. Love my, my other sons and daughters. Love my family. If you do that, you're going to find these things working out. It tells us, by the way, in the book of Romans, that the Gentiles who didn't have the law of God do the things as if they were required of the law because God wrote the law in their hearts. Have you ever done something and it was actually right? And then you actually looked in Scripture and went, oh, I did that. Awesome. And the guy's like, uh, uh, um, I, I did that through you, just in case you were kind of curious. And you're like, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay, sorry. Got it. Listen, as we go to prayer, Jesus, the cross is within his crosshairs. I mean, no pun intended. The idea is that within a few days, Jesus is going to die on a cross for the very people who are standing against him right now. And you and me as well. Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What kept Jesus on the cross was not ropes and nails. It was love. It was your face and mine that he could see. And that was enough. Because it was never in balance the love he would offer. It's like, I want to give you my love. I want you to take it, but I want yours in return. So please hear me in this. If you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, can we go back to what it really means to be a Christian in life? God, what do you really want? I want your love. That's what I want. I want your love. Not just some gushy emotion, but a commitment to handing your life over it's yours now. God made himself the groom and us the bride, not to make us feminine gentlemen, but so that he could be the one responsible for leading and we could be the one responsible for following. We hand our lives up to him. John, by the way, would tell us in First John, don't even call yourself a Christian if you hate your brothers. Stop even pretending. Because you can't say you love God who you haven't seen and hate your brother who you have. And we didn't say that about the, the lost in that case. The context of that, again, is you can't hate God's people and say you belong to him. So stop pretending. But today, can I just ask, how about instead we walk out of here with a clear conscience? Lord, I want my life to be one where it's just that simple. What I want, I know you want, is my love. Next week, by God's grace, I fly in in the morning after doing five outreach concerts in, in uh, Italy. We come in. We're going to go through the Deuteronomy text. And he's like, look it. When you get up, I want you to remind. I want, I want the first thing to be, you want my love. When you go to sleep at night, you want my love. When you start walking somewhere, he wants my love. When you talk to people, he wants my love. When you teach your children, God wants our love. On the doorpost, I want people to look and say, you know, when you walk in this house, this house is very clear on this. He wants our love. 
on your gates, that's the part where people walk by. They say, hey, when people, they look at that house. That house is one where they recognize God wants their love. Your hands, I want it there because I want people to recognize. Whatever I do, he wants my love. Like between the front lid of your eyes, because whatever I see and seek, he wants my love. On my feet, because wherever I go, he wants my love. No matter what it is, the one thing to me, he just you want my love. And if that would be the case, and I start making choices, I'm like, in this choice, would this choice really be demonstrating that I am giving him my love, or is it actually the opposite? Is this choice, yeah, I know you want my love, but this is instead a choice outside of that. It should govern everything. And then, as I recognize that, I'm like, all right, Lord, now how practically does that look? He goes, now take the love I give and spend it on everyone else. Spend it on my brothers and sisters. And now you're going to have a chance to do that as we pray. Because after we pray and we head out of here and you can go and, and mingle around the tea table and all that, would you just ask God to turn on your radar and say, Lord, how can I practically love somebody in this fellowship today? That could be as simple as a hello and a prayer. It could be whatever the situation is. It, you might be amazed at who the Lord may connect you with on your radar. But are you willing to pray that with me, Christian? I'm going to do the same. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, last thing. Jesus died on a cross for your sins and mine when we were dead in our trespasses and sin so that all of our guilt could be paid for. And just like Scripture promised, he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day so that now as the conquering king of all of our guilt and shame and sin, he offers us salvation and freedom and deliverance and he wants to pay the debt of our guilt. But again, let me just say, you have three options. One is that you can just not be willing to receive that gift. The second is you could just take it lightly or you could say yes. But that's not my choice. I've already made it. That's your choice. But don't blame God. You could say, well, how could a loving God send someone to hell? Send them to hell? He gave you the choice. Don't blame God. You make the choice now. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you how you've kept us on target here. And I thank you for how you hijacked days like this just to make clear again what you really, really want. So, Lord, I pray today, right now in this room, for every person, myself included, that there would be a genuine, simple clarity to what it is you desire. Lord, may we wake up in the morning and go, oh, you want my love. When we go to sleep at night and go, oh, Lord, you want my love. When I sort through my, my day, like, Lord, what you've always wanted was my love. When I look at other people, you want my love. When I set my hands to something, you want my love. But then I realize in all of that, when I set my hands and you want my love, and you pour your perfect love into me, so you don't go spend it well, where you put your feet, where you set your hands, where you seek with your eyes. So Lord, do so, please, with us. Make us people, Lord, who are so clear and that we could celebrate and delight in the fact you are a God who genuinely wants relationship and the most intimate of that in our love. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed right now, if there be any or many in this room who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, maybe you're not sure. Maybe you prayed some prayers as a kid, maybe, but you didn't even know what you were doing or you went through some class or something, but you realize that there is a God who says, will you receive the gift that I've paid at the cross and will you let me be the love of your life, the Lord and Savior? And if today you recognize that and you're not in your battle, you're like, well, I'm, I'm not even really sure, you can walk out of here sure. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. Now, maybe you did say yes a long time ago, but you haven't been walking like you have that relationship. Well, today, then rededicate your life to him. Say yes to him. Not because it's something's in the balance other than this. Your heart and the obedience that you should have, that surrender that should come with recognizing that the love is to be offered. And what you're robbing yourself of and your own selfish desires you're robbing yourself of the love of God. So here's the prayer. Father in heaven, I confess to you I'm a sinner. That's no surprise. I've done wrong, thought wrong, felt wrong, intended wrong. But you and your perfect love for me paid the price for all of my guilt on the cross of your son 
Jesus the Christ, who took upon himself my shame and hung naked to die so that all of my guilt could be properly punished. And just like you promised in Scripture, even more than a thousand years before, on the third day he rose again to prove that the payment was full, that the check cleared, that it has been accomplished, and now that he wants to be the Lord and Savior, the love of my life, and I say yes. I may not understand everything, but I do know this much. If you really are that perfect and pure and that good and that almighty, well, then I'd be a I'd be a nutter to say no to that. So I say yes. Yes to Jesus' payment at the cross. Yes to making him my love and Lord. And yes to your adoption that I would be yours. I don't want to take it lightly. I don't want to dismiss it or reject it. I want today be the day I say yes. So here I am, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Well, heads are bowed for just a moment. If you've prayed that prayer today, I would just like the honor of knowing so that I could be praying for you. And I'm trying to make it as subtle and as careful just to, to respect you. If you've prayed that prayer today, would you just get eye contact with me? That's all. I'm not going to call you for anything. I'm just asking you to say, all right, I prayed the prayer. I see you. I see you, bro. Who else today? I see you. I see you. Who else today? I see you. Who else today? I see you. Who else today? Oh, Lord. I see you. Oh, Lord, you are so good. I pray for these brothers and sisters now, Lord, that you would... Just give them an insatiable hunger for your word that they would know you for who you really are. That you would bring them into that family in such a way, Lord, that they could grow and develop in you. And Lord, that we could be the lover's club where we could be so in love with you even as you are with us and grow in that when the rest of the world may diss our choice. May this be the place of safety where we recognize this is the place where we get recharged to go and be used now to represent you to a lost world and be used by you to serve a saved one. So Lord, cement these choices. I know you take them seriously. Bless them for this. Let them hear all of your angels in heaven rejoicing over their choice today. In Jesus, in his name. Amen.